Chapter Two, Part B of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Two, Part B. Weener Sahib, fate has tied us together. I hoped not. I was weary of Goots and his phony accents. On account of your female Burbank, your scientist, scientistess is a twister, Peter Piper, Edapega Pickle Pippers, won't play ball with W.R. The chief offered her a fabulous sum, much beer and little kegs, many dozen hard-boiled eggs, and goodies to a fabulous amount, fabulous for W.R., that is, to act as special writer on the grass business. J.S. Francis, world-renowned chemist, exclusively in the intelligencer, you know, suppress her unfortunate sex, originator of wild grass tells all. Anyway, she didn't grasp her chance, practically told W.R. to go to hell. Practically told him to go to hell, he repeated, evidently torn between reprehension at the sacrilege and admiration of the daring. Miss Francis plainly had what might be described as talent that way. I debated whether to inform Goots of my discovery of her craziness, and decided against it on the bare possibility it would be unwise to lower the value of my connection with the metamorphizer's discoverer. I was soon rewarded for my caution. Oh, Wienerusson, continued Goots, evidently in an oriental vein, traveling westward, not too hard for you to be picking up a few yen. You do not hate fifty potatoes from editor San yesterday. Forty, I corrected. Forty, fifty, what's the difference so long as you're healthy? He produced a card, showed it, tore it in half, waved his hand, and exhibited it whole and unharmed. No kidding, chum, the old man has the bug to make you a special correspondent. On my advice, you understand. Always looking out for my pals. Well, why not? The wheel of fortune had been a long time turning before stopping at the proper spot. I had never had any doubt I'd some day be in a position to prove my writing ability. Now all those who had sneered at me years before, my English teachers and editors who had been too jealous to recognize my existence by anything more courteous than a printed rejection, would have to acknowledge their injustice. And in the meantime, all my accumulated experience had been added to enhance my original talent. I'd sold everything that could be sold door to door, and a man acquires not only an ease with words, but a wide knowledge of human nature this way. Certainly, I was better equipped all around than many of these highly advertised magazine or newspaper authors. Well, I don't know if I could spare the time. Okay, big shot, let me know if the market goes down and I'll come around and put up more margin. How much will Mr. Lefessacy? How the hell do I know? More than you're worth, more than I'm getting because you're a ninety-day wonder, the guy who put the crap on the grass and sent it nuts. Less than he'd have given Minerva Medusa, come and get it straight from the horse's mouth. My only previous visits to newspaper offices had been to place advertisements, but I was prepared to find the daily intelligencer a veritable hive of activity. Perhaps some part of the big building which housed the paper did hum, but not the floor devoted to the editorial staff. That simply dozed. 
Scoots led me from the elevator through an enormous room where men and an occasional woman sat indolently before typewriters, stared druggedly into space, or flew paper airplanes out of open windows. The only sign of animation I saw as we walked what might well have been a quarter mile was one reporter, I judged him such by the undersized hat on the back of his head, who enthusiastically munched a sandwich while perusing a magazine containing photographs of women with uncovered breasts. Even the nipples showed. Beyond the city room was a battery of private offices. I will certainly not conceal the existence of my extreme nervousness as we neared the proximity of the famous editor. I hung back from the ground-glass door inscribed in shabby peeling letters, in distinction to its neighbors newly and brightly painted, W. R. Lafassacy. Goots, noting my trepidation, put on the brogue of a burlesque Irishman. Is it afraid of himself, you are, me boy? Sure, think no more of it. Faith, and wasn't he born Billy Casey, no better than the rest of us, for all his mother was a Clancy and related to the Finnegans? He's written so often about coming from a noble Huguenot stock he almost believes it himself. But the Huguenots were dirty Protestants, and when his time comes, W. Arl send for the priest and take the last sacraments like the true son of the church, he is in his heart. So buck up, me boy, and come in and view the biggest faker in journalism. But Goot's flippancy reassured me no more than did the bare sunlit office behind the door. I had somehow, perhaps from the movies, expected to see an editor's desk piled with copy paper, while he himself used half a dozen telephones at once, simultaneously making incomprehensible gestures at countless underlings. But Mr. Lefassacy's desk was nude, except for an enameled snuff-box, and a signed photograph of a president whose administration had been subjected daily to the editor's bitterest jabs. On the walls hung framed originals of the more famous political cartoons of the last quarter century, but neither telephone nor scrap of manuscript was in evidence. But who could examine that office with detached scrutiny while William Rufus Lafassacy occupied it? Somnolent in a leather armchair, he opened tiny sunken eyes to regard us with less than interest as we entered. Under a shiny alpaca coat, he wore an old-fashioned collarless shirt whose neckband was fastened with a diamond stud. Neither collar nor tie competed with the brilliance of this flashing gem resting in a shaven stubble-fold of his draped neck. His face was remarkably long, his upper lip stretching interminably from a mouth looking to have been freshly smeared with Vaseline to a nose not unlike a golf club in shape. From the snuff-box on his desk, which I'd imagined a pretty ornament or receptacle for small objects, he scooped with a flat thumb a conical mound of gray-brown dust, and this, with a sweeping upward motion, he pushed into a gaping nostril. Chief, this is Albert Weiner. How do, Mr. Weiner? Goots, who the bloody hell is Weiner? Why, Chief, he's the guy who put the stuff on the grass. Oh... He surveyed me with the attention to a worthy but not particularly valuable specimen. You bit the dog, eh, Wainer? Goots burst into a high, appreciative cackle. Lefassacy turned the death ray of his left eye on him. 
You're a sycophant, Goots, he stated flatly. A miserable, groveling, low-livered, cringing, fawning, mealy-mouthed, chicken-hearted, toad-eating, arse-licking, slobbering sycophant. I couldn't see how we were ever going to reach the point this way, so I ventured... I understand in view of the fact that I inoculated Mrs. Dinkman's lawn, you want me to contribute. Desires grow smaller as intelligence expands, growled Lafassacy. I want nothing except to find a few undisturbed moments in which to read the work of the immortal Hobbes. I'm sorry, I said. I understood you wished me to report the progress of the wildly growing grass. City Editor's Province he declared uninterestedly. No such thing on the intelligencer, Goots informed me in a loud whisper. Lafassacy, who evidently heard him, glared, reached down, and retrieved the telephone from its concealment under the desk, and snarled into the mouthpiece, I hate to interrupt your crap game with the trivial concerns of this organ. Men called a newspaper till you got on the payroll. I'm sending you a man who knows something about the crazy grass. Divorce yourself from whatever pornography you're gloating over at the moment to see if we can use him. His immediate obliviousness to our presence was so insulting that if Goots had not made the first move to leave, I should have done so myself. I don't know what vast speculation swept upon him as he hung up the telephone, but I thought he might at least have had the courtesy to nod a dismissal. You're hired, be Jesus, proclaimed Goots, and of course, I was, for there was no doubt a brilliantly successful figure like Lefacity, whatever my opinion of his intemperate language or failure in the niceties of deportment, he was a forceful man, had sized me up in a flash and sensed my ability before I'd written a single line for his paper. The wage offered by the Daily Intelligencer even assuming, as they undoubtedly did, that the affair of the grass would be over shortly and my service ended, was high enough to warrant my buying a second-hand car. A previous unpleasantness with a finance company made the transaction difficult, with as little cash as I had on hand, but a phone call to the paper established my bona fides, and I was soon driving out Sunset Boulevard in a tomato-colored roadster meditating on the long-delayed upsurge of my fortunes. The street was closed off by a road barrier quite some distance away, and tightly parked cars testified to the attraction of the expanding grass. Scorning these idle sightseers, I pushed and shoved my way forward to what had now become the focus of all my interests. The Dinkmans had lived in a city block, an urban entity. It was no pretentious group of houses, nor was it a repetitive design out of some subdividing contractor's greedy mind. Moderate-sized, medium-priced, middle-class bungalows. These were the homes of the Dinkmans and their neighbors, a sample from a pattern which varied but was basically the same here and in Oakland, Seattle and St. Louis, in Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, and Cleveland. But now I looked upon no city scene, no picture built upon the substantial foundation of Daddy at the office all day, fixing a leaky faucet of an evening, painting the woodwork during his summer vacation, or Mom, after a pleasant afternoon with the girls, unstintedly opening cans for supper and harassedly watching the cleaning woman who came in once a week. An alien presence, a rude fist through the canvas, negated the convention that this was a picture of reality. 
a cone-shaped hill rose to a blurred point, marking the burial place of the Dinkman house. It was a child's drawing of a cone-shaped hill done in green crayon, too symmetrical, too evenly and heavily green to be a spontaneous product of nature. Man's unimaginative hand was apparent in its composition. The sides of the comb flowed past the doors and windows of the adjacent houses, blocking them as it had previously blocked the Dinkmans, but their inhabitants, forewarned, had gone. More than mere desertion was implied in their going. There was an implicit surrender, abandonment to the invader. The base of the cone, accepting capitulation and still aggressive, had reached to the lawns beyond, warning these householders, too, to be ready for flight, over back fences to dwellings fronting another street, and establishing itself firmly over the concrete pavement before the Dinkman's door. I would be suppressing part of the truth if I did not admit that for the smallest moment some perverted pride made me cherish this hill as my work, my creation but for me it would not have existed. I had done something notable. I had caused a stir. It was the same kind of sensation, I imagine, which makes criminals boast of their crimes. I quickly dismissed this morbid thought, but it was succeeded by one almost equally unhealthy, for I was ridden by a sudden wild impulse to touch, feel, walk on, roll in the encroaching grass. I tried to control myself, but no willing of mine could prevent me from going up and letting the long runners slip through my half-open hands. It was like receiving some sort of electric shock. Though the blades were soft and tender, the stems communicated to my palms a feeling of surging vitality, implacable life, and ineluctable strength. I drew back from the green mass as though I had been doing something venturesome. For no matter what botanists or naturalists may tell us to the contrary, we habitually think of plant life as fixed and stolid, insensate and quiescent. But this abnormal growth was no passive lawn, no sleepy patch of vegetation. As I stood there with fascinated attention, the thing moved and kept on moving, not in one place but in thousands, not in one direction but toward all points of the compass. It writhed and twisted in nightmarish unease, expanding, extending, increasing, spreading, spreading, spreading. Its movement by human standards was slow, but it was so monstrous to see this great mass of verdure move at all that it appeared to be going with express speed, inexorably enveloping everything in its path. A crack in the roadway disappeared under it, a shrub was swallowed up, a patch of wall vanished. The eye shifted from hole to detail and back again. The overrung crack was duplicated by an untouched one a few inches away. It too went. The fine tentacles on top of the mound reached upward, shimmering like the air on a hot summer's day, and near my feet hundreds of runners crept ever closer, the pale stolen shiny and brittle, supporting the ominously bristling green leaves. I hope I've not given the impression there was no human activity all this while, that nothing was being done to combat the living glacier. On the contrary, there was tremendous bustle and industry. 
The weed-burning crew was still fighting a rear-guard action, gaining momentary successes here and there, driving back the invading tendrils as they wriggled over concrete sidewalk and roadway, only to be defeated as the main mass, piling higher and ever higher, toppled forward on the temporarily redeemed areas. For on this vastly thicker bulk, the smoky fingers of flame had no more effect than did the exertions of the scythemen, hacking futilely away at the tough intricacies, or the rattling reapers entangling themselves to become like waterlogged ships. But greatest hopes were now being pinned on a new weapon. A dozen black and sooty-looking tank trucks had come up, and from them, like the arms of a squid, thick hoses lazily uncoiled. Hundreds of gallons of dark crude oil were being poured upon the grass. At least ten bystanders eagerly explained to any who would listen the purpose and value of this maneuver. Petroleum, deadly enemy of all rooted things, would unquestionably kill the weed. They might as well call off all the other silly efforts, for in a day or two, as soon as the oil soaked into the ground, the roots would die, the monster collapse, and wither away. I wanted with all my heart to believe in this hope but when I compared the feeble brown trickle to the vast green body, I was gravely doubtful. Shaken and thoughtful, I went back to my car and drove homeward, reflecting on the fortuitousness of human actions. Had I not answered Miss Frances's ad, someone else would have been the agent of calamity. Had Mrs. Dinkman been away from home that day another place than hers, or perhaps no place at all might have been engulfed. On the other hand, I might still be searching for a chance to prove my merit to the world. It seemed to me suddenly man was but a helpless creature after all. End of chapter 2, part B